You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge, life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. After generations fighting wildfires, California has among the most robust firefighting systems in the world. But as the last two weeks have demonstrated, even the Golden State has its limits. I'm Keith Manconi, this is KCBS In-Depth, and today in the program, we take stock of California's firefighting resources after weeks of major fire disasters that have stretched those resources to the breaking point. To discuss the firefighting effort and the incredible challenges fire crews have been up against, we're joined now by Cal Fire Deputy State Fire Marshal Bryce Bennett. Bryce Bennett, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for having me. So they say that you need to get used to the new normal. That's what we've been hearing in California for years now. But this is truly shaping up to be a fire season like no other already. Uh, For the past two weeks, the Bay Area has been literally ringed in flames as three massive lightning-sparked fire complexes, the uh, LNU, CZU, SCU, uh, scorched thousands of acres, destroyed homes, forced mass evacuations. And this as we continue to deal with the ongoing pandemic. So... You know, it just seems like a remarkable couple of weeks. You're you're probably more up on the firefighting history here than I am, but it it seems like this has already been uh, unusual, both in terms of the extent that firefighters have to deal with uh, all at once and uh, the, the the areas that are burning. Oh, absolutely. Um, we're we're here in August, and traditionally in California, we we see our most large and damaging wildfires in September and October, and that frightens us, frankly. Uh, here in the office and, and, and throughout the state that if we're seeing what's now currently occurring, the second and third largest fires in California history occurring a month prior to our typical normal busy months of the year, uh, what's to come? Are, are we going to have even larger fires this year? So uh, the, the thoughts go to us to make sure that we are maintaining and in for the long haul because we don't we don't who knows what's coming in the next two months yeah the statistic that's really stuck out to me is so far over the last couple of weeks 1.6 million acres have burned typically by this time of year uh, the the typical number is 55,000 acres so that's just a marked disparity right and, and it, a lot of that has to do with this event that occurred um, and the last time that we had a lightning event, like this was 2008 and even that lightning event had uh roughly 5,000 lightning strikes compared to nearly 14,000 lightning strikes in this last event but acreage wise in number of wildfires you had uh almost double the amount of wildfires in 2008 at nearly 1500 and about 700 wildfires that were sparked from the one here but you see a massive disparity between the number of acres burned. And in 2008, we saw about 245,000 acres burned from those fires. And and we are already up over 1.38 million acres on this one. So almost a, a quintuple amount of acreage. So we're seeing the fires grow larger, faster, and unfortunately more frequently. 
Let's talk about the limitations. You know, that, that gives a good picture of the very difficult circumstances that firefighters have been operating under and the uh, constraints that they have faced as they fought this fire. And, and that's really been a theme, uh, a fairly marked theme throughout the past two weeks. I've uh, been to a, uh, a few press conferences and a few fire updates, fire briefings, and uh, CAL FIRE officials have been pretty clear when they say, you know, the the typical firefighting resources, the manpower, the equipment that uh, we would like to have on this, the, the air power in a lot of cases, uh, we simply don't have because there have been so many fires burning in so many different places. I'm wondering if you could uh, discuss a little bit what those constraints have meant for this firefighting effort. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, CAL FIRE's mission is to suppress 95% of all of its fires at 10 acres or less. And the idea that we have is the more resources we can send to a fire to keep it small, the more resources we have available to respond to other fires. So when we have uh, close to 700 new wildfires at, the, at any one given time, and we're trying to full court press 700 wildfires, it's, it's impossible. So what we try to do is to send as many resources as we can to a fire quickly to suppress it, to keep it small so that it doesn't impact a community and it doesn't impact first responders across the board. What happens when you get such a substantial number of fires started at the exact same time, um, these fires are not necessarily occurring in accessible areas. So uh, lightning typically doesn't strike next to a road or an address sign. If you, you know, you drive your fire engine up to the fire and put it out, it's right there. No, these are areas where we have to build roads to get to the fire. We have to use bulldozers to uh, cut fire line in these areas. Um, we use our air assets the moment we can. Um, with the winds occurring over these fires, they were gusting close to 60, 70 miles an hour in some places. And uh, a tanker drop is, is ineffective when winds are over 30 miles an hour because it just blows the retardant uh, um, into the wind and it never actually hits the ground. So uh, it was a, a, an alignment that of things from Mother Nature that was just absolutely incredible. We, we had to make sure we were protecting life first before property we had to make sure we got the public out as safe as possible we had to keep them safe then we move into controlling the fire and protecting property and then we protect resources so in that order the fire service operates here in california of life property and resources so thank goodness most of the public evacuated early so that we could get in and uh, protect structures as best we could all right, a lot more to talk about, but real quick, I want to remind listeners that they are listening to KCBS In Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, taking a closer look at the incredible strains placed on firefighters while battling the ongoing fire disasters throughout California. Joining us for that conversation is Cal Fire Deputy State Fire Mar Marshal Bryce Bennett. So we're talking about the constraints on resources and how thinly stretched uh, a lot of this has been how, how many uh, at its peak how many fire personnel were on these three complexes uh, around the bay area we had over 15,000 fire personnel operating in california and that was uh supplemented by uh over 90 engines coming from out of state 
Uh, it was also supplemented by uh, federal assets and through the National Guard, um, those being both hand crews as well as air assets and helicopters and fixed wing aircraft. So uh, we, we thank our, our partners and cooperators and fellow neighboring states that are willing to aid us in our time of need. It's, it's quite the firefight occurring over the state. Um, geographically, it's vast. It's not like this fire is occurring in any one given spot. Um, I'm happy to report that a lot of the fires in Southern California are thoroughly under control and they're able to release resources from those fires so they could come aid us in the north. Um, but again, we are still expecting uh, lightning over the north edge of the state um, throughout uh, the weekend and towards the back half of the summer here. So it's we're not out of the woods yet. So you, you, you've fought on the fire lines. For those of us who don't have that experience. Help us understand what it means when we're talking about this lack of resources. Just in a practical sense, what would you like to be able to do to suppress these fires that at times was not possible this go-round, either because the uh, the air support wasn't there or just the, the manpower that you would typically like to have wasn't there? So when we're battling a fire, what we want to do is we want to actually physically put a line around it. What that means is we're going to scrape away the vegetation, whatever it is, whether it's uh, a six inch tall piece of grass or it's a hundred foot tall tree, we are going to create a barrier of bare mineral soil between the fire and where we want it to stop. Now, we have to consider the area. You can imagine, your listeners can imagine their own neighborhood and how uh, how would we do that? How We don't cut lines directly through houses. We, we utilize targets of opportunity. So if there's a ridge line, uh, we will uh, try to get the fire to come up to that ridge line in a low intensity so that we can hold it at that ridge line. And the way we do that is with a coordinated effort. We have to know where the fire is. We have to know how fast the fire is moving. We have to know how many crews it will take for us to construct that fire line so that it's actually effective. A three foot wide fire line is not effective when you have a hundred foot tall flame lengths. So that's a big consideration. What is burning? How hot is it burning? How hard is the wind blowing? So if you can imagine, uh, I can imagine on a fire engine um, working with four other fire engines in my immediate strike team on a given area, the fire line that we can create needs to be a coordinated effort with our partners to the right, our partners to the left, our partners in the air supporting us using fire retardant water drops to, to quench the fire enough so that we can get up to the edge of it and put it out. But now you're looking at fires that you, hundreds of thousands of acres you know we're up over 370,000 acres on two of these complexes and we're talking about physically cutting line around that size of a fire it, it's it's almost inconceivable to the public to to be able to to do that but we do and it, and it's through that coordination of resources and since we have these we have multiple of these complexes occurring at any one given time the resources are stretched thin and we're not able to do it as fast as we could do it in, the, in a, if it was a singular fire. So um, that definitely creates a stress 
on the working crews on, on the lines, some of them double, triple shifted. Uh, we, want to, we have to find ways to rest the crews to keep them healthy so that they are productive and safe. Um, you start wearing thin on, on rest, you start making bad decisions, and that's not something you want to do in the fire ground. Yeah. Yeah, no, certainly. I uh, I remember going, uh, reporting on the Kincaid fire and speaking with some of the firefighters out on the line. And I mean, it's uh, it's the incredible strain that uh, some folks are under is uh, quite amazing. But, you know, getting getting to that point of perhaps the manpower shortage slowing things down, do you think that it's fair to say that some of these complexes may not have reached the full extent that they in fact, did uh, if if uh, Cal Fire was able to battle them in isolation, if there was only the CZU fire to worry about, do you, do you think that it could have been a little bit more manageable? Absolutely, with, without hesitation. Um, California has the the best master mutual aid system in the world. We we communicate with our partners, brothers and sisters in nearby states and local agencies, federal agencies, state agencies on a regular basis. We train together. We all speak the same language. So when we attack a singular fire in that full court press mantra, yes, absolutely. We, we can do a lot more. Now, yeah, when you stretch your resources or you divide that up, now uh, CAL FIRE has six type one incident management teams. These are the top best of the best in fire ground managers, logisticians, uh, scientists, uh, fire behavior analysts, weather personnel, name it. These people come to town, this group of people that knows each other, that trains together, that has experienced fire together for years and years and years. They can allocate resources to put out a fire as quick as possible. Five of our six incident management teams are currently deployed. That and we're, we're just holding one in reserve for what could come next while the other five are deployed. Um, so those, each of those teams are, some of them are managing 25 or 30 fires. And that's what makes up the complex. So it, it's, to me, as a fire professional, that's astonishing to have all our resources drawn down to just one free incident management team for whatever natural res- natural disaster comes next that team gets it so if we have another one right now one in reserve that's it yeah that uh, i think that really does put things in perspective and it's it's important to put things in perspective because you know looking at things from the ground level, from the point of view of the residents that have been impacted by these flames, uh, there's a lot of folks, especially in the CZU area uh, and the uh, Los Altos Hills area in particular, I've read some stories about, uh, that have felt like they've been largely overlooked, that their neighborhood has not gotten the firefighting attention that uh, they would have expected. And I, uh, I, I, just curious for your response to those concerns, although based on what you've been saying so far, it, it, it's, you know, understandable where, where, where a lot of this is coming from. Yeah. Well, we have to triage. Um, and again, we protect life, property, and natural resources in that order. So if we're stretched thin on resources and there is a life threat somewhere else, we have to handle that first before we can handle a property threat. 
So that triage of, of where to send resources or allocate resources is, is, a, is an awful decision to make, but it's something we have to do in situation. It's something we do on a daily basis on any fire, let alone one where we're stretched and have so many resources out that, that we can't afford to have any more fires from the public. Uh, you know, it's actually a little bit remarkable. We've made it this far into the conversation without mentioning it. But this also is happening on the backdrop of the worst pandemic in 100 years. And I know that that's complicated the operational procedures for firefighters as well. Discuss a little bit uh, among the many, many constraints that firefighters are under. How is that complicating things even more? Sure, it absolutely has. Um, it, in the uh, early stages of, of what was occurring um fire managers recognized that we were going to have um, a serious impact to what we do. So they took steps to modify our base camp facilities first and foremost. Um, these would be the places where we create a small city um, in the event of a, what we call an extended attack fire. Whereas we originally would have had maybe part of a, a fairground area, we're now taking up the entire fairground uh, so that we can have proper social distancing for our, our fire crews that come in to um, feed. And base camps have been no stranger to, uh, or firefighters in the fire service has no stranger to communicable diseases. So believe it or not, we've already for many years taken steps on um, sanitation, on, on clean, being clean and hand washing within a base camp uh, for many, many years, simply to avoid the flu. Uh, so we already had a lot of steps in place that keeps the firefighters and the fire personnel safe within the base camp. Now what we've done is we've uh, increased the size of the feeding areas. We've increased the size of the sleeping areas. Uh, fire crews are operating as kind of pseudo family pods and they're, they're really encouraged to just interact with themselves. Whereas, uh, you know, the, the fire service in California is a very small family, believe it or not. And we know each other, uh, friends in Southern California, and I work in Northern California. I might've gone to fire Academy with somebody. We're just kind of discouraging that we, we don't use a fire to catch up with old friends or whatnot, like we would maybe over the dinner table. We stay in our pods within our fire engines and whatnot. And that seems to be uh, working. We're also taking steps. Uh, there are medical units that are monitoring the health of the firefighters. They're utilizing uh, infrared uh, technology to check temp temperatures to make sure uh, we can curb any possible symptoms and whatnot. And I know another challenge is the constraints in terms of the the number of uh, prisoners that have been able to join the firefighting effort. Obviously, that's a, an essential part of California's firefighting force, but. A lot of prisoners have had early release or a lot of prisoners uh, for other reasons have been affected by the pandemic and have not been able to uh, join that firefighting force this year. What, what can you tell us about uh, what those numbers look like and, and how that impacts things? It most definitely does. Our, our inmate hand crews are, are critical to our firefight and a phenomenal amount of work on a fire. Uh, they, they're the ones that physically do the hardest work of cutting a hand line through some of the most steep, most inaccessible terrain you can imagine. Uh, typically, uh, CDCR and CAL FIRE operate uh, 192 fire crews statewide. Um, though we were impacted uh, in some of those crews had to be 
uh, quarantine for some time, we were down to 90 at some point. Um, now that we are, there are no crews currently on quarantine, we're back up to 113. So there is a substantial gap uh, still existing within that. And you got to remember that within the prison system, uh, working on a firefighter hand crew is, is a volunteer situation. Um, it's, it's not mandated. So they, they have to want to go and do it. Um, yes, early releases and whatnot, that's, that's something that CDCR has to handle, the California Department of Corrections habilitation. Uh, so it is a challenge. So how did we fight that knowing that that was coming? Uh, the governor allocated us over 800 more seasonal hirings than we would have had. So those firefighters, we have augmented fire engines with, as well as creating their own firefighter hand crews. So uh, that, that gap isn't as wide as it appears. We've filled in uh, a lot of it, but definitely not all of it. Yeah. Well, real quick, I want to reintroduce you and the program. Uh, for anybody just joining us, you are listening to KCBS In-Depth. I am Keith Manconi. Today, where does the firefighting start when it seems like the whole world is burning? We're discussing the massive firefighting effort that has unfolded throughout the Bay Area and California over the past two weeks with Cal Fire PIO Bryce Bennett. You know, we've been talking a lot about the some folks that have felt overlooked during this fire. And because of that, there are some communities, uh, notably Bonnie Dune, where residents have taken the firefighting effort into their own hands. And uh, I know from speaking to fire officials that, of course, CAL FIRE takes a, a dim view on this for a number of reasons. Uh, and uh, we can get into that in a second. But just uh, taking the perspective for a moment of these residents, you know, when, when they're not seeing that fire response coming, they're not seeing that backup, they're not seeing the, the crews rushing to their aid, it can be an understandable response to want to protect your own home. So it seems like a complicated issue. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? I completely understand. I would be this, feel the same way. Um, I I'm maybe have a different perspective because I'm a trained fire professional uh, versus someone who is not. But I, I, under, I understand the sediment of trying to make sure that I can protect my own property um, when... I have the perspective of the fire service where I have seen how the fire approaches a property depending on the slope, the topography, the vegetation around the home. Has the homeowner taken steps to provide defensible space around their home? Have they been responsible in, in clearing? Do they have pine needles in their gutters? Do they have wood shake shingles? Do they have flammable materials around their homes? These are steps that we've been been telling the public for years and years and years to be ready, set, and go for a wildfire. And part of that is making sure you're making your home hardened in case of a wildfire coming through. And the idea is that you can reduce the flammability of the area around your home so that when the fire front comes through, it will actually burn around your home and it would be able to do that without a fire engine or yourself with a garden hose trying to fan back the flames. Now, if you have not done any clearing and you have vegetation that's completely overgrown, you have trees hanging over your house, you have pine needles in your gutters, uh, even with a fire engine coming up to that house, we're going to triage it on a normal day and, and not defend it. There are 
homes that we can defend and there are homes that we cannot defend in a wildfire. And, and that's a normal situation we go through, regardless of us being so taxed on resources that maybe now that triage is even different when we have fires throughout California. Yeah, and obviously uh, residents want to do everything that they can to make sure that their homes are as uh, easy to save as possible. But w- what do you say to the resident who says, you know, it's it's my house, my property, my life. Uh, what's the harm if uh, I'm willing to put my life on the line to save this house? Why, why is that anybody else's business but my own? Well, uh, the fire service is going to want to help you regardless. So in, in that given situation... A, a fire engine would will stay. And, and now that resident's actions are forcing that fire crew to stay in a situation that maybe the fire crew is trained to know that is a red flag or, or a watch out situation that we don't, we don't have a spot that we can defend our ground. Um, whereas a homeowner is, is locked in on a property and that engine is now there. Um, that fire, that, that engine captain or, or uh, company officer is going to take some steps to try and quickly triage that home and come up with a plan to do the very best they can to do that. But they're certainly not going to leave the resident um, without some, some tips because just, just trying to fan back the flames of a, of a wildfire that's coming with, with an intensity that, that is unmatched and unseen is just, I, I, I don't know how to describe it because... I just wouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. So it's just a, a disparity in terms of the resources and the experience that you're saying make situations that are just too unsafe to put people in uh, and, and, and potentially that extends that, that risks to others that might be forced to save them. Uh, so just closing thoughts. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about so many different ways that the last two weeks have really been remarkable in the history of fires in California, which is already a remarkable place to live when it comes to firefighting. But I guess one last extra remarkable thing that I want to add to the list to close things out is the fact that for a lot of folks, this was the first time that major wildfires really did seem to threaten their homes, at least for a very long time. Uh, you know, I was speaking to a lot of my friends down in the South Bay and uh, others in Santa Cruz County. When you burn areas that haven't burned in decades, that means that folks are suddenly discovering that they're in fire country when they probably didn't think that they were. What do you think for folks that are waking up today and, and, and discovering that they are in fire country? What, what are you hoping they take away from the past two weeks? And what are you hoping they do between now and the next time a major wildfire sparks in their area? Probably the biggest thing is his preparation and, and being prepared for a natural disaster. And I'm not, not going not gonna to relate this to only wildfires because California is no stranger to natural disaster. Fire, flood, and earthquake. We, we got it all here. Um, we, I, and unfortunately, we've had tornadoes now in certain situations and even compromise, compounding within a fire perimeter, um, unfortunately, on the car fire uh, just recently in Redding uh, over the last couple of years. So preparation is probably the best takeaway that I could offer anyone. Uh, do the homework, contact your local fire safe council, become involved in your community, know your neighbors, help each other to create 
what we call a fire adapted community. You know, the a fire break is as only good as the left side and the right side. It, it, it needs to be a continuous thing. It can't just be one person in a community. It needs to be the entire community. So utilizing the tools that exist, uh, for instance, readyforwildfire.org is a, is a toolkit that's been worked on for years by uh, CAL FIRE, by the Forest Service, by local governments. Everybody in, in EMS and first responders has had input into this product. And it's there to help the public understand that maybe some of the things that you're considering are really important. If you were told to leave your house in a moment's notice, there might be some other things that you're missing. So there's some really important tips uh, about remembering uh, irreplaceable items, uh, paperwork, prescriptions, um, different things. One, one of the, the most recent uh, takeaways that I personally have was from uh, our former deputy director of communications. She lived in Napa and experienced the Napa earthquakes where uh, her bedroom had a substantial amount of glass breakage. Well, she didn't have any shoes near the bed and their, the entire floor of their bedroom is littered with glass. So a simple takeaway is to, well, keep a pair, old pair of shoes underneath your bed in case this were to occur and you had to evacuate your home immediately if a fire front were to come through. Not to mention the, the rest of going further down the line of, of how do you make your home safe in the event of uh, a wildfire? Do you have a go bag or can you evacuate? Which way do you go? Are there multiple ways out of your community? Um, there's, there's just a tremendous amount of participation that is required uh, for a community to, to work together, to become fire adapted, to be safe with each other, to be uh, able to help each other in need. And, and that's where we're at right now. We really need to help our neighbors. Yeah, and all that prep work, I, I suppose just in closing thoughts, all that prep work, even more important because as difficult as the last several weeks have been, there is no indication and no reason to think that the rest of the fire season is going to be any easier. This is far from over. It's absolutely right. We are still oncoming with our most damaging wildfires possibly in the next couple months. All right. A lot to keep in mind. And as we just heard, there are a lot of uh, actions that can be taken right now. We have been speaking to Cal Fire Deputy State Fire Marshal Bryce Bennett. Bryce Bennett, thanks so much for joining KCBS In Depth. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for listening for KCBS and In Depth. I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe. Be well. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.